you have any questions about your practice? The question was about working with the paradox between metta and upeka, loving kindness and equanimity. Um, there's one very simple guideline. Don't do them at the same time. <laughs> I think when you, when you understand it, Not so much from within each practice itself, but from um, a broader, a more inclusive understanding of the Dharma. You see how they actually fit together very well. Because in some way, you could see it as analogous to uh, the connection of compassion and wisdom, which are the two great attributes, you know, of the Buddha. Equanimity is the wisdom aspect in that it understands the lawfulness of everything that happens, that things are not happening accidentally. Understanding the lawfulness allows the mind to become impartial in its boundlessness. So it's, and that's really, the, that's really the meaning of equanimity or the, the quality of equanimity, impartiality, with the mind not going towards or away from everything. So we can understand the lawfulness and the impartiality and then out of that place of wisdom cultivate a boundless goodwill for all beings. It doesn't mean that we forget that things are lawful. And because of that, the metta is really freed from what, from that state which is its near enemy, which is attachment. Because metta without wisdom, we're developing all these good feelings, good wishes for people, Without the wisdom, it could easily become or turn into attachment towards beings. So that's where the balance is. It's, it's like the balance between wisdom, compassion, or equanimity, and metta. It's the wisdom which holds the metta, or the wisdom which allows the metta to flow without any grasping, without any clinging. The question was the assumption that uh, there's some effect from the metta sitting here every day doing it. There's always an effect from everything. I mean, because nothing is happening in isolation. So every thought, every movement, every action of necessity will have effect in the world. What the effect is, is hard to say. 
tempted to tell my little meta story. Did I mention my? <laughs> I was walking in the woods, this is quite a few years ago, and uh, out in Western Mass, I was walking by this house and there was this little dog that was barking quite aggressively and you know, came running towards me. So I thought, oh, perfect opportunity to do some meta. <laughs> be happy, be happy, be happy. He came over and bit me. <laughs> Maybe that's what made it happy. <laughs> uh, so it always has some effect. <laughs> Although in that situation, I uh, did begin to question the purity of my motive. <laughs> The effect really does depend a lot, or the, the magnitude of the effect depends both on the power and the purity of the mind that's sending the metta, and also the quality of the openness or the sensitivity of the person to whom it's being sent. Um, but that does not... Actually, understanding that there's an effect from the metta itself highlights the lawfulness of things. Now, yeah, that given the development of certain mind states, it will have certain results, even though we can't necessarily know what the results are all the time. Uh, so it's not, it's not paradoxical in that sense either. The, the danger or the caution is not to be doing the matter with an attachment to result. No, it's really like a free offering. It's a free gift. We send it out. Let what happens happen. Otherwise, there's, there's a kind of clinging or attachment uh, expectation in the sending. It's really, it, it, it's a very deep question because it, it really uh, is about the understanding and the integration of relative and absolute levels. You know, the meta level is a relative level because we're, we're talking about beings. And, and being is a relative concept. And may you be happy, may I be happy. And we're dealing with the concept of I, of individual beings. The absolute level is that there's no one there. You know, it's all empty phenomena rolling on. And both of these are true. So that's where it sometimes, on the surface, seems paradoxical. But a lot of the spiritual practice is about understanding, in some way, the unity of relative and absolute levels. You know, at the same time that we're wishing loving kindness for all beings, there is the wisdom of understanding that there are no beings. So we have another ten days to figure this out. Last year, after the three month course, 
that frequently those, um, I guess the bhavanas would arise spontaneously according to the circumstances I was witnessing or involved in. If you saw uh, or heard about in the news some terrible disaster, uh, you could hold it by saying all things are as they are. You know, I feel tremendous sadness and sorrow for the beings mm -hmm. who were involved in that catastrophe, but also, mm -hmm. and also uh, in terms of metta, frequently, without having been a particularly strong practitioner of it, the metta would arise fairly spontaneously. Um, so my question is, um, you know, I, I know that people are doing three-month courses in each of the Brahma Viharas and stuff. Um, is, are the Brahma Viharas sort of natural attributes of the awakened mind, and is it necessary to really go into each of them that completely, or could one simply stay with Vipassana and have the Brahma Viharas kind of rise in one's mind, or manifest in one's mind as a natural the question was about, to, to paraphrase it, um, whether it's necessary to do the Brahma-viharas as a way of developing and deepening those qualities or whether they come as natural attributes of awareness, you know, as we do the awareness practice. Um, my mind, when it's given two choices, and this is, this is, I guess, uh, you've been regaled with qualities of the different types, you know, the deluded type, the aversive type. Well, I'm the third. <laughs> Given two choices, my mind says, let's do both. You know, let's get the benefit of both. And in some way, both are true. It's not, so it's not, it's not a question of either or. It is true that out of awareness, all the Brahma-viharas come. You know, so that would be a fine way to go. And they do come. They really come quite spontaneously because really the Brahma-viharas are the expression of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, which is exactly what's being cultivated in every moment of mindfulness. So they're going to develop spontaneously. And on the other hand, we can single out the particular qualities you know, of the Brahma Viharas and strengthen them. My sense and my vision of the Dharma is that it is so vast. And the, when I think of the, or imagine, you know, the mind of a Buddha, it's, it's so incomprehensibly vast. Why not do it all? You know, just that, and there's no rush. You know, there's plenty of time to cultivate all of the, you could call it all of the paramis, or all of the attributes of Buddhahood. Or, uh, and they all are feeding each other. You know, generally we tend to have a very limited time scale for our practice. Well, what will I do this three months, or this six weeks, or this ten days, or this year? Or It's said that you know, the Buddha in his previous lives, in one, at least in one story, where 
he spent lifetimes just practicing one parami. You know, lifetimes practicing patience, lifetimes practicing metta, lifetimes practicing lifting, moving, placing. <laughs> you know. And so even if we're not so much in the belief system of lifetimes, which you may or may not be, but we can even view all, just this life in that context. You know, where you take time just to develop different aspects of the Dharma, and it's all, it's all for the same uh, purpose in the same direction. So the short answer is, it's not necessary, and it's nice to do. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, actually, I think what's motivating that question is something that Michelle said in one of her talks about someone she knew who had practiced Vipassana for 20 years and had never done metta, and then he started to do metta and said, you know, that he felt about his Vipassana practice and had a sort of aridity about it. You know, so, I mean, I guess that's what's motivating the question. I, I personally don't feel that Vipassana has buried, but then I haven't lived in with that long. Is the concern that it might become more arid as it goes on. (laughs) The particular rhythms of our practice and the particular practices we do, I would really be very intuitive about what feels appropriate to be doing at any stage along the way. Because as I say, it's all part of one great river. There's just one announcement I'd uh, like to make. Um, It's usually translated as absorption. Just the mind getting absorbed in a concentrated state. It's a very good question because uh, it's a common experience. It's quite a mystery how it works. I have no idea why it does. Well, why don't you try? I mean, one thing is with these resolutions, uh, they do only work when the supportive conditions are there. So if the preparation has not been done, you could make the resolution and nothing would happen. You know, so it's not, it's not completely 
disconnected from what you've been doing and the the preparation of the mind. Uh, now there are five, as you probably know by now, there are five jhanic factors for the first jhana, and they're just different uh, initial initial application, which is the connection, sustained application, rapture, happiness, one pointedness, and when there's uh, they've been strengthened and are in balance, then the resolution will have effect. But why it is that just by making a resolve in the mind and then something happens is quite amazing. So just enjoy the mystery of it. This is an image that's arising. Yes, the, the <laughs> 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 I'm not really dangerous. <laughs> but, um, but there's no emotion with it. I actually feel the strike and the impact goes through my body. So I feel that hmm. and I see it happening, but there's no emotion. And I'm wondering, is this like a, a release of past life? Because it doesn't seem to be related to anything. Hmm. Is it like a... Hmm. The question was about this very quick images happening both in the sitting and outside of the sitting of being with a person and then seeing herself kind of striking them down with a sword. sword. (laughs) And the question is where do these images come from? Are they from some past life? It's really difficult to say where they're coming from, perhaps. Or perhaps it's the... uh, some constellation of images from all the movies we've seen and all the books we've read and you know the mind just storehouses uh, all of these impressions and it's uh, not dissimilar in a way uh, from dream images you know when you're when you're sleeping at night and all strange combinations uh, arise in the mind Um, i think it's not so important to know where they're coming from, uh, as is how you're relating to them, whether in the moment you're seeing it as simply an image, you know, arising in the same way that a sound arises. So you're just sitting and the image arises, being known, noticing the impermanence, the insubstantiality, uh, or whether there's some kind of hook in it, you know, whether there's some kind of reaction or identification or pushing away. Outside sitting, it's because it's like you know you expect anything to happen in the sitting, but outside of sitting, it's, you know, it's a little bit more disturbing. Right. Um, really, the the direction the practice is going is really to have less and less of a distinction between sitting and non-sitting, because it's the same mind at work. It's not that our mind suddenly changes when we stop sitting. You know, it's just throughout the day 
moment after moment, something is being known. Sight, sound, breath, sensation, image, emotion. And that's happening in the sitting, in the walking, in everything. So actually I think it's a good sign, you know, that uh, you're beginning to see less distinction in your experience. And again, the important thing is how you're relating to it, not, not what it is that's arising. And sometimes very weird things arise, but it's all like a movie. The only power that things have are the power that we give them through identification, through reaction, you know, in and of themselves, everything, whether thoughts or images or feelings or sensations, in and of themselves, they're simply empty, insubstantial phenomena. You know, appearing and disappearing, there's not much substance there. But we invest a lot. Or there's a strong habit, habituated conditioning, to invest a reality in what's arising. You know, and the mechanism of that is through reaction, through identification, through judgment. Could you elaborate on the, um, the Mahasa perspective on the book? <laughs> 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 the Mahasa perspective on cessation and how, whether that, whether freedom is seen in that model is dependent experience. Okay, the question was about the talk I gave the other night and whether in the Mahasi model, which is also found in the Visuddhimagga in the suttas, uh, of whether freedom is dependent upon that experience of cessation. Is that what you were asking? Is that a necessary prerequisite in that system? Right. In that way of understanding, you know, the development of the practice, it's those moments of path and fruition consciousness which are taking Nibbana as the object right, and is experienced as a cessation of the flow of conditioned phenomena. That first moment, that path moment, has the power to uproot the various galaxies or the defilements. So you could think of freedom in, from two aspects. One, the freedom of that, in that state itself, of cessation, but also you could think of it as the freedom of mind being free of defilements, which comes as the result of that. I guess what the question was that generally it's, as it's the culmination of the path in that system, it's quite a refined state and usually experienced in intensive practice. So it's like almost a precondition almost is a period of intensive practice. Not necessary. Right. The comment was that in that system, because this is such a refined state, that it usually usually happens in periods of intensive practice and so comment was in some way intensive practice becomes a prerequisite you know, for that, which is often true, although not necessarily, like with the question on the 
John Gregg's solutions, it's all a question of conditions coming together. You know, and it's like we do the work and then it's surrender. Because it never, nothing happens as you know, I hope by now, <laughs> by expectation. You know, exp- expectation just gets in the way and it's really this, this question of understanding that the practice is one of non-attachment to anything. And we practice that and the conditions are created for whatever's going to happen to happen. And then it can be at any time, although intensive practice seems to be a good idea. <laughs> you know, be, mostly because uh, just the conditions support the mind of no attachment. One of the I've mentioned this before, I think, but one of the biggest helps to me with respect to these different systems and ways of explanation and models of development is taking refuge in don't know mind. My great mantra is who knows? You know, there are just so many angles on things and you practice in one way, it develops or unfolds in a particular way. Practice with a slightly different perspective or angle, it unfolds you know, in a slightly different way. But it's all about, in all of the traditions, in all of the practices, it's always about the diminishing and eradication of greed, hatred, delusion. So it's very simple, like if there's any confusion about the practice or or the model, it's very simple to come back to that basic. In any moment, is the mind full of greed or free of greed? Full of aversion or free of aversion? And that, it really simplifies things because it can get complex, you know, with all of uh, the different slants on things. Last question. Um, I suppose it's because of, of the shortening of time, but in the last few days I find myself um, unable to stay quiet between sittings. I'm still practicing, but my mind wants entertainment. I walk around and this place isn't enough. <laughs> I, I reach for books and then I say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to stay collected. I want to take a walk, wanting to be bigger than just being there. Any help? <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't think it's wanting to be bigger. I think it's uh, wanting to become distracted. Um, and that's fed, and quite commonly, in the last days of retreat. And it's fed primarily because uh, we may start missing the trigger points for future rising. You know, you're just you're just going along, and then almost subliminally, you know, there'll be a thought: Oh, only a few days left. What am I going to do when I leave? And just the mind starts creating a future scenario. And to the extent that we get caught in it, it can create a kind of restlessness, which then uh, 
seeks to act out in various ways. My experience from the end of going through this you know, period of end of retreats many, many times is that it actually is it's much more painful and difficult to get into a kind of practice mode, kind of half practicing, half not in anticipation of the end, that's a much more difficult space to be in than actually arousing the diligence and the vigilance to stay right there until the end. because that kind of restlessness in the mind is, is an unpleasant, difficult uh, space. What it takes is being very careful for that trigger point, you know, because they come so quickly. Um, and so I would just use these last few days to watch how the mind, how we create mind worlds of future through our thoughts, through not uh, being aware of those thoughts arising. Because not only will it help you really stay balanced and concentrated and at ease in these last days, but it's tremendously uh, valuable in seeing how we do that very same process in our lives. So it's very revealing because these kinds of thoughts are coming up and they're coming up quite naturally. So it's not a question of them not coming. You know, it's natural to start anticipating or thinking about what's going to happen when you break silence or leave the retreat. But the challenge is to see that just as a thought in the moment rather than to be investing a reality in it and then living in that little mind world with all the emotional consequences. Do you follow? So it's an extremely uh, illuminating time if you stay quite alert to the arising of these kinds of thoughts and images and to see them for exactly what they are, just a thought. If you see it as that, the thought arises and it's gone and you're still right here as mindful and concentrated as and as into the retreat as you might have been right in the middle. You're not, you're not pulled out at all. But this is a real challenge in these last days. I would, I'd urge you to look at this because it is very revealing about how our mind works and about how we live our lives. So have fun. <laughs>
I'm, I really don't know. No. Uh, the question was about the relationship of practice of mindfulness to the onset of Alzheimer's disease. I can just share with you one little anecdote uh, because I don't have a lot of experience with it, so I don't know. Uh, but we were teaching one retreat um, in Colorado, and there was a woman who was in the very beginning stages of it, and so she would. Uh, sometimes just not remember, you know, where she had put her shoes. Or... And my first, we were talking about it, and my first uh, response was just to encourage sort of a more careful mindfulness, you know, in those activities. But that didn't really seem to kind of hit the mark. And then somebody came up to me afterwards who had been working with Alzheimer's uh, patients. And they said something which made quite a bit of sense to me, that it's, it wasn't so much being mindful, trying to be mindful in the moment, because that is simply forgotten in the disease, but to get okay in the mind with having forgotten. You know, because she was getting very upset that she had forgotten. And that was the piece, you know, where the meditation was really a very big help. That, okay, if the forgetting was there, that's okay. And if you need to ask help because of that, that's okay. And the easing of the mind in that respect. Uh, what the long-term effect of the practice is on the onset or not of it, I, I don't think really anybody knows at this point. I don't, anyway. question about the phrase, the Dharma is beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end. Uh, just as a side comment to that, it, it's interesting in the different translations, sometimes it's translated as beautiful, sometimes translated as excellent, sometimes translated as noble, sometimes translated as pure. Uh, so we want to keep you know, that whole range of meaning. In the Satipatthana Sutta, there's one very controversial phrase. It's sometimes translated as, uh, there is, or this is the only way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, namely the four foundation of mindfulness. In, in Pali, the phrase, ekayana maga, which means, 
sometimes translated as the only way, sometimes translated as one, the one way. But people often have difficulty with that translation. And another one that's been suggested from the Pali, which is ambiguous, you know, in the Pali, is a way that only goes in one direction. And on this, I think that in some way relates to your comment that the path of mindfulness, the path of the Dharma, only goes in the direction of purification, in the direction of the alleviation of suffering. So in that sense, whether at the beginning of the path or the middle of the path or the end of the path, it's in the direction of awakening, in the direction of purity. some rather uh, what's the word an analogy which really doesn't do this justice at all but it's just coming to mind uh, is with skiing it's fun in the beginning fun in the middle and fun at the end <laughs> you know, no matter what level you're at from the first time of just being out on the mountain, even as you're falling all over yourself, it's fun. So even as you're falling all over yourself in the practice, (laughs) and all the way through becoming an adept, you know, there's the great great joy of uh, the truth of it. The, the question was about intention in the mind and the, the understanding here that behind every action there's an intention. And yet in the book, the Zen and the Art of Archery, the culmination of that discipline is to learn to shoot the arrow without intention. And so what's going on? I think there's just a little confusion around the word intention because in the, di- in the discipline, as I understand it, from the book of you know, the Zen and the Art of Archery, it's not so much, it's intention in the meaning of discursive thought. So it's being able to shoot without thought about it. The body doesn't do any, the body doesn't move if there's no intention. Corpses don't shoot arrows. You know, there's some mechanism whereby the arm is pulled back and it's released. But that's the intention in this respect is not discursive. It's not thought and it can be completely spontaneous. And I think that's what it's getting at, you know, to free the mind of thought about it. 
all the kinds of uh, reflective thought, which we know so well about uh, judgment, good and bad, will I hit the target, all of that. And so there can be intention, just just that mechanism in the mind, which uh, you could say triggers the action. But that's, that's very spontaneous and in the moment. Good sitting. The question was about the reporting form and finding that many of the things that were happening in the practice uh, didn't seem to be easily expressed in the very disciplined reporting form that Upandita, for example, that, that model. Uh, there are two aspects here. One is to realize that that is just one model of reporting and even within the Mahasi tradition, really Upandita is the only one who has fashioned that way. So there are many ways of reporting the experience, some uh, a little less formal, you know, where there's just a general accounting of what happens. So one is just to understand that and to work with whichever teacher you're working with to find the way that's most appropriate. There's also the possibility of learning how to use that form, if it feels like that's the appropriate way, to actually express everything that's happening. You know, but that takes some training in it, because it's not, it's not in any way limiting the experience. It's just framing whatever experience happens in a particular way. And so, for example, if there's a lot of thought about something, that could be reported. There was a run of papancha, a run of thought. I noted it as such, or I didn't note it. It continued. It disappeared. I came back to whatever. So you're, you're including, or that could be with emotion, with anything, with, with any kind of mind state. It's really just a report on whether or not 
we're mindful of it when it arises, whether we note it, noticing what happens to it. Uh, But as I said, this particular way of reporting is not necessarily for everyone. So it doesn't have to be a problem. If you did, if you do kind of intuitively feel that it would be helpful, though, it's capable of being practiced. You know, and it takes some time to really learn the, the skill of it. Do you have any uh, suggestions for kind of shopping? Come back next year. question was about how to be with uh, the crumbling aspect <laughs> of some mental factors you know as we reach the end of the retreat this is actually a very important point and a very uh, critical time or, or useful time in the practice because it can highlight what we've been talking about in these last weeks, that the practice is not about having certain experiences. It's about not clinging. And this is a very good example. If we're practicing to hold on to a certain state, like calm or stillness or quiet or depth or whatever, it's probably either becoming clear now or will become vividly clear tomorrow that these are conditioned states. They're arising out of certain conditions coming together and useful. A lot can be done in terms of insight in those states. But what we're practicing is not for the state itself. What we're practicing is for the mind not to cling. We can be mindful of anything. You know, we can be mindful of confusion, we can be mindful of the loss of concentration. I think I've mentioned earlier in the retreat, in the Satipatthana Sutta, a very interesting part on the fourth foundation of mindfulness, where it goes through, it lists, in that fourth foundation, mindfulness of mind objects. Sometimes it's translated as mindfulness of the Dhamma, which means, in this case, just the elements of mind and body. In one of the lists in that, you know, it goes through all the factors of enlightenment. We're mindful when concentration is present and when it's not present. We're mindful when rapture is present and when it's not present. I find that quite striking because the practice then is to notice equally when it's there and when it's not there. You know, and the purpose of the mindfulness is so that we don't cling, we don't get attached. Uh, there's so many aspects you know in this time now one of the aspects of faith or confidence comes out of the understanding that everything is the Dharma unfolding 
Dharma in the sense of the elements of mind and body. Nothing changes. You know, we go from this time of silence to time of talking tomorrow and interaction and different kinds of things will happen. But it's this very same process of nama-rupa going on, of mind-body elements. When we see that or have that understanding, have confidence in that, it really can inspire our efforts to stay awake, to stay aware in whatever conditions are happening. And this is essential, you know, especially given the lives that most of us have chosen to lead because we're not in monasteries, we haven't secluded ourselves from the world. You know. So we really need, this is the great challenge for us, that we need to see that the practice is seamless through any condition. This time now, this kind of transition time, you could see this next week as its own retreat. You know, offering really special opportunity to practice this. Got it? <laughs> and it's difficult. I mean, it's very difficult. That's, that's why you don't want to throw this time away, you know, or get lost in the papancha, in the story of the retreats over and, you know, and whatever that means for you. It's not helpful and not true. You know, you, you think it's really helpful to think of our life as a retreat, taking different forms. And this coming week is a very uh, powerful time to really watch how we do that and to practice it. Otherwise, things get very fragmented. You know, oh, this is my spiritual practice, this is my meditation, and everything else is not. I don't think that's a helpful way to, to understand what we're doing. And again, we'll, you know, tonight and in the next days, we'll be talking a lot of trying to encourage and remind you to keep this kind of awareness uh, during these times. It's difficult. Uh, so you really want to water this seed you know, of understanding. Okay, <laughs> that being said, really just enjoy this last day of silence. The silence itself is a condition of great beauty. You know, and you'll appreciate it a lot tomorrow. <laughs> so enjoy it today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.